sounds like a flute or a piccolo, but it's actually world champion whistler Haki Tamas performing Mozart. But whistling isn't always an occasion to express happy melodies. In the mountains of Mexico, whistled speech is a vital form of communication. The use of this whistled language is dying away. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, Whistling in the Mist. <laughs> he says, let's go back to town. <laughs> I think he's had enough of it out here. <laughs> he also said their lips are getting tired. They're not accustomed to the whistling the way they used to. So there's, it's like playing a musical instrument. Later on the show, how one thin dime can lead to a small fortune and a virtual visit to a city that's 3,000 years older than the pyramids. But first, Mark Sicoli studies a rare form of whistled speech, which is endangered in the few places around the world where it can still be found. Mark is a professor of anthropology at the University of Virginia. His 2014 documentary, Whistles in the Mist, won an Emmy Award for its presentation of whistled speech, by indigenous people living in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico. It's an ancient practice that predates the arrival of the Spanish by many centuries. Mark, tell me about Oaxaca, Mexico, and the steep mountainous area where these people live. So this area is south of Mexico City and a little to the east. It's in the Sierra Madre uh, Mountains, the same mountain chain that um, goes up to form the Rockies. And it's high, actually. In order to get there, we had to go over 10,000 feet and then drop back down to their village and levels. There are neighboring communities uh, that are a little smaller, 600, 800 people um, that also whistle, but they whistle differently. It's a fascinating uh, fact that the neighbors to Sochiapan, which also speak Chinantec, can um, understand each other when they're speaking, but not when they're whistling. How much a part of the speech is the whistling? The whistling is really just a fraction, right? It's, it's purposeful. It's mostly for guys out in the field. Yeah, the whistling is still used by a few people out in the fields. That's its place, really, and uh, across the town. The town is actually on a mountain slope, so it's, um, it's, if you want to go say hi to someone, you actually have to spend a half an hour climbing the hillside to get there. But you can whistle to them immediately and, and get a response. So people would use it around town to kind of communicate across this, this really mountainous landscape and out in the fields where people who are working in fields but out of sight from one another can still have conversations with each other about what's going on in their field and things like this. What amazes me from seeing your documentary film Whistles in the Mists is how nimble the whistling is. It's not just get over here or, you know, the kind of summoning a lot of us do with our whistles mm -hmm. or a cat call. There's language to it. So they actually whistle the language. The language is what's being whistled. You know, you can, you can shout in order to make your voice go further, or you can whistle. And what whistling does is it gets rid of a lot of aspects of the language. It gets rid of all the consonants, the vowels, but it leaves the melody. That's so interesting you saying it leaves the melody because so much of our language is melody, right? 
That's right. And the way the pitch moves, right, across syllables in a word. So give me some of the rudimentary whistling you know and show me how that matches how one might speak. Yeah, so I, you know, I use the whistling to call my boys here. So I might whistle, and that's Silvio Rey, which is the name Silvio, and then Rey, which is a, a word that's used in Chinantec to mean it's the end. You say over because uh, the other person actually doesn't have a cue that you're done. And with whistle speech, people are at a distance. They generally can't see each other. And they need to tell each other when they're done. So do it again. So, um, <laughs> Silvio Rey, right? Or I could say, <laughs> Luca Rey, right? So Luca, two syllables, has a high-low tone pattern, and then Rey. How would you call somebody who also has a two-syllable name, like me, Sarah? Um, so Sarah and Luca would be whistled the same. So, you know... It would be context. Yeah, you would have to get it from the other aspects of the environment. Like the voice, you can recognize who's whistling as well. Did you have some examples from your film that you could play for me and then translate so I can see how people were doing this in the field? Yeah, I have some here. So let me play. uh, This is a simple example first. Okay, so you can hear some water in the background there. The two men are standing near a waterfall. They're about 100 yards apart. Two young men, Israel and Roman, and Israel whistles, are you already finished over there? Roman doesn't get it, and he says, huh? And then uh, Israel repeats. He says, are you finished over there? And then Roman says, yes, over. So let me play this um, this example. This is on the other side of a conversation. So on the last one, we were close to Israel. This time, we're close to Roman. Okay, so here, Israel in the distance tells Roman to go and get your brother, and we'll go. They had been talking about going off uh, hunting. And he says, go and get your brother, Sixto, and we'll go, over. Roman doesn't get it, and he says, huh? Right. And then Israel simplifies. He repeats, but does just one part of it. He says, go and get your brother Sixto over. And so he removed the and will go. And then Roman agrees um, with him. He says, OK, over. People prefer to do one thing with their turn at talk. But in this case, Israel tries to do two things. He says, go and get your brother and we'll go. And that created trouble in the conversation. It's interesting because Israel and Roman are really younger than the others who know this whistled speech best. It's sort of the province of the older men now, right? Yeah, it has been. So whistled speech is generally passed down from father to son. So all boys had to pass a test when they were 18 that they could whistle, you know, more than a half a mile. If they couldn't, they would have to pay a tax. The village stopped forcing it this way. Um, What we have now is we have a, a couple of people who happen to learn it from their fathers. And then there's elder men who know it, but don't really do it that much anymore. You know, these same men that David and I worked with when we were producing the documentary uh, were carrying walkie-talkies with them to communicate across the, the rugged landscapes Oh, now. Of course. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, electrification has changed 
the whole ecology there such that um, whistling isn't as important as it used to be because, you know, there's internet cafes where people can chat with each other across their computers. How long do you think they've had whistled speech? What's your guess? You know, this is a good question. And of course, we don't know because language doesn't leave fossils. What, what we do know is that it was widespread in Mexico and in other areas of the world. So, yeah, so whistle speech can be found on every continent. Uh, in fact, the Canary Islands, there's a variety of Spanish that is whistled there in the Canary Islands. On the other side, really, of the Mediterranean and Turkey, there's what's called the bird language there is a whistled form of Turkish. Uh, also Greek, there's a whistled variety of Greek there's whistling across um, Mexico. So uh, Chinantec is one, but there's also um, whistled Mazatec. There's whistled um, Mixtec. There's whistled Zapotec. So are these whistlings much different? When you hear, let's say, an Alaskan whistle versus a Mexican, do you hear something different? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the systems are very different. So there's two ways that languages get whistled. So some languages have tones, like the Chinantec. It's a tonal language. There's seven different melodies that you can put on any word. Show me what a tone is. Yeah, so take this word. This, this is from a language called Zapotec. Stone, which has a high tone, and then stone with a falling tone, right? So this would be que um, and que in the spoken language. You can have a high falling, a mid falling, you can have a mid rising or a low rising. So languages like English and Yupik Eskimo don't have tone. And so when people whistle them, they're whistling the melodies of the words just on the, the differences in pitch between vowels. So if you, if you look at a vowel like ah, that has a lower pitch than a vowel like e, right? Um, when I say near and far, you can hear that near has a higher pitch than far. And if you were to whistle, it'll be like... Did you do one word or two words? So this is near and then far, right? So why whistling in Alaska? Is that also mountainous whistling? So it, it seems to be that it um, may be related to fog, things that put people out of face-to-face -face contact. What about Plains Indians? Is there any equivalent there in America? You know, there's other uses of the voice that get used there. So like falsetto voice, um, also in other places of Alaska where you can use a very high-pitched voice um, to, to mean certain things and to carry across long distances. So there's ways that people project the voice. Yodeling is like this too, right? And so in the Alps, for instance, um, yodeling is a cultural practice that um, is very iconic, right, of the Alps. But that's also a long-distance communication system, and it's um, you can communicate several different things. Um, in Papua New Guinea, there's a form of yodeled speech as well. And right next to it, right in the same area, there's a form of whistled speech, you know, one of the things that's really fascinating about whistle speech is it, it teaches us about language when it's stripped down to a bare minimum. So we're very used to thinking about language as the things that get written or the things that get spoken. But this is also language. But it's, it's, you've removed all the consonants and vowels. And so you've, re you've removed some of what we would call the degrees of freedom, the ways that you can add meaning by you know, by consonants and vowels that give you lots of options for words. It doesn't um, give you emotion, though, right? You don't have emotion in whistled speech. Well, sure you do, yeah. But not like, I love you, you've always been important to me, that kind of thing. Right? You, you could say these things, certainly. 
you know, and everybody in town would also know. Did you? <laughs> but you never heard that, did you? No, I didn't hear anything like like that. Once again, though, the 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 whistling has nearly fallen out of use. Do you remember when you first heard it? Do you remember when you first got to Oaxaca and heard people doing this? Was it thrilling for you? Oh, absolutely! What a um, what an amazing sound to echo through the mountains there and in the fog too when it really carries it's yeah it's just an amazing sound on the landscape and the first time I heard it uh, I got off the bus and I had about a mile walk and through the fields I could hear um, some kids whistling and the whistle moved up the hillside and by the time I got to my friend's house uh, he was already outside waiting for me because he knew that I had arrived that's a moment yeah that's absolutely absolutely um, the Chinantec area where the documentary was made is, is one of the most robust forms of whistle speech um, that I've ever come into contact with because people there can whistle pretty much everything that they can say. I hate to see this language dying off. And as you've pointed out, fewer and fewer people are whistling. But there is a digital archive that's been created. Are you part of that? Yeah. So that was part of a project that was funded by the National Science Foundation. So the archive is is um, hosted at the Archive of the Indigenous Languages of Latin America, which is at the University of Texas at Austin. And there's another copy at the Max Planck Institute uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, there's a language archive there. And these are both available online. People in the community can access them. Scholars can access them. And they are um, permanently preserved Well, this is fascinating. Mark, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you for having me. Mark Ciccoli is a professor of anthropology at the University of Virginia. For a link to the archive of Whistled Speech, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. Coming up next a virtual recreation of an ancient city. Nowadays, no distant or exotic locale is out of reach thanks to the aid of virtual reality. All you have to do is don a headset and you can walk the Great Wall of China or scale the pyramids of Egypt. But those who make the simulation still aren't satisfied. John Last tells the story of an international team of researchers who are going to some unusual places to recreate the perfect ancient experience. When you walk into Psycho Diallo's ancient city, he wants you to smell it. Well, certainly all the bad smells. Diallo is an engineer, and he's part of a team behind a new immersive virtual experience at Old Dominion University. Together with the Virginia Modeling, Analysis, and Simulation Center at ODU, he's built a walking tour of a 9,000-year-old Turkish city called Çatalhöyük. So why does he want his visitors to smell Çatalhöyük's sewage? We tend to experience and remember our home countries through smells and sounds. So we wanted to help the the person experiencing Shatahoyuk maybe understand what it would have smelled and sounded like 
an addition to what it looked like. So Diallo made his ancient city smell like it should, like the garbage ancient families dumped in their alleyways. Not only that, Chetelhoyak is in central Turkey, so... We tried <laughs> at least to make it really, really hot. But even though visitors were packed in by space heaters and assaulted by nasty smells, they were treated to much more than just a smelly, sweaty trash heap. Diallo offered his guests tea and ancient Turkish delicacies and took them on a virtual tour of the city built 3,000 years before the Egyptians built the pyramids. Our goal was to really try to give you a, a sense of immersion that doesn't rely on just the visual. It is a sort of trying to push the idea of virtuality to its natural conclusion, which is to make it undistinguishable from real life. Overall, it's sort of seeing ourselves in the past. It's like time traveling, which makes it fascinating. Chetelhoyak is a fascinating city to study, not just because it's so old, but because it's so mysterious. Archaeological records suggest that, trash heaps aside, Chetelhoyak was, for almost 2,000 years, a kind of utopia. Tools and fields and cows and food were all shared collectively. Extended families gathered around communal clay ovens and crafted tiny idols of a benevolent mother goddess. The trash heaps in the alleyways reveal something else as well. The people's houses were meticulously clean, decorated with stylized drawings of horses and cattle and family members' handprints. It all sounds quite nice, really. But then... All of a sudden, the city disappeared. Chetelhoyak just ceased to be. And as to why, well, no one knows. So part of using the simulation, we hope, will help us explore the reason why it gradually disappeared. It might seem far-fetched that a simulation in 2017 could reveal something about a city last populated more than 7,000 years ago. But Diallo says immersive simulations like his are expanding the possibilities of virtual reality and challenging the very notion that believing is just seeing. Instead of having simulations, we need to have narratives. This is an area where we have to really uh, humbly try to learn from the tricks that movie makers have used for centuries now, for at least 150 years. They know how to get you to believe and, and project yourself into what they're telling you. And that's something that we need to humbly recognize and, and, and learn from. Now, Diallo might have something that Hollywood storytellers don't have. The smell of Chetelhoyak's garbage. That was former With Good Reason associate producer John Last with the story of Old Dominion University professor Psycho Diallo. Coming up next, One Thin Dime. Michael Musadola is one of the nation's foremost experts on collecting old dimes. His 9-to-5 job is as a professor of health and physical education at Longwood University. 
Michael is just the sort of expert you'd want to check out that jar of old coins that might have been lying around for years. Michael stunned his friends when he revealed their grandfather's tackle box filled with coins in the garage was actually worth a small fortune. Mike, I understand you don't just collect coins. You collect, in particular, dimes. Why dimes? When I was a little boy, I went with my father and grandfather to coin shows, and so I used to bring three, four, five dollars with me, and I'd go there and try to fill up my set. You do this almost professionally. You flip dimes the way some people flip houses. I would say, on average, I probably look at about ten to 12,000 dimes a day. Really? Do mm. you? And how much... And in your wildest dreams, how much can you make? Well, I think somebody who has researched it and knows um, what they're looking for in any particular day might make $5,000 in a, in, a, in a single day. And that all depends on what you have spotted that somebody else didn't see and then knowing the value of it, knowing the market, and being able to flip it. What was your greatest flip? Uh, I've bought one dime for $0.15, cents and uh, I would say went for a little bit over $3,000. Ah. took about 10 minutes, too. Just picked it off eBay. Somebody, it was an estate sale. Someone just put it up as a buy it now. I, I purchased the lot. It's just a little bit over smelt value of silver. Um, it broke down to that coin cost, giving me about 15 cents. And then I put it right back up, and a random person scooped it right up. And if that was an estate sale, why were there so many coins? Was it somebody's grandfather's jar? Usually, what happens is a family member passes, somebody doesn't know anything about coins, so they either put it to auction, bring it to a pawn shop, put it up on eBay, and then uh, that's where people like me get first uh, you know, pick at it. So in a lot like that, are they showing you each coin on eBay with a close-up picture of both sides, or are they just saying, who wants this jar? Ironically, I normally like when they don't give me a nice clear picture on stuff because other people are going to spot what I'm looking for. So what I'm hoping for is that it's not listed correctly, the picture's a little blurry, there's something wrong with the lot, but I can still pick up enough of it there where I can take a shot on it, and that's what happened, and, and it panned out. Do you ever come across fake coins? Oh, that's a big problem today. The the Chinese especially have infiltrated the market with electrotypes and different fakes. And I've, I've seen a number of fakes. I still see fakes today on eBay. So you buy most of your coins on eBay. Do you also sell them on eBay? Sometimes, yeah. Um, and I would say I don't buy most of them on eBay. I buy good deals on eBay. But even garage sales, even pawn shops, uh, even coin shows where dealers who have been dealing for 50 years don't know what they have, believe it or not. Really? Mm. Does that happen? happens more than you would think, especially somebody who has spent 40 or 50 years in a business to not know their inventory, that there's a little diamond in the rough sitting in their little showcase. There are dimes out there that you could retire on, right? There's no question. A couple of years ago in 2012, uh, an 1873 Carson City dime sold for almost $2 million. Why so much? There's only one of them. <laughs> so there's, there's plenty of dimes out there that you can retire on. How could there be only one of a certain mint? Well, in that particular case, they had printed out about uh, 12,000 of them, and then the mint melted them all. So there wasn't supposed to be any in circulation. And then later on, one showed up. And then uh, an all-time collector, Louis Eliesberg, it was the last coin he needed to complete a set. He had one of every U.S. coin, and that was the last one he needed. Um, <laughs> and since then, it's traded hands a few times at auction. Tell me about the history of minting dimes in America. When did we start it? And help me understand how it's evolved. In, in our oldest mint is in Philadelphia, but coinage started um, in, in 1792. But many of the coins 
didn't didn't first get mint until 1796. There were different mints, so Philadelphia and Denver, San Francisco. With each mint, they put their mint mark on the coin. So if it was in San Francisco, there'd be an S on it. If it was in Philadelphia, there'd be a P. Denver would be a D. Carson City, CC. Were there dimes in the 1700s? Oh, yes. Yeah. Different design than they were. I mean, we, we went from a bust of uh, Liberty on the dime to the seated dime that I currently collect, um, and then to Barber dime to a mercury dime and then roosevelt that we have today the seated dimes what i'm out of all my dimes that series i'm passionate the most what is what does that mean the seated dime well i have a few here if you'd like to take a look at them i'd love to so you have a shoe box <laughs> it's a great spot to store coins yeah so this one says 1864 10C. Which is a, an 1864 dime, and this, of course, was during the Civil War. You could have bought five acres of land in Alaska because it went for about two cents an acre from William Seward during, of course, Seward's folly. So this puts in perspective how much 10 cents was in 1864. But today, this coin, uh, in this condition, would sell anywhere from 1500 to $2,000. Can't you just imagine whose hands that dime went through in that period? It very easily could have been in Abraham Lincoln's hands. I mean, we're talking 1864. He did, wasn't assassinated until the following year. But the remarkable part is that it made it all the way till 2017. How many people come to you and say, could you look at my dimes? I want to see if they're worth anything. It usually ends up being a family member passes. I feel bad, too, because almost always it's one of two things. They either have a fortune there or they don't have that much and they think that they have a lot. Tell me a story where somebody had a fortune and hadn't realized it. It was in a, a garage. There was a wheelbarrow, and it was a fishing tackle box with some coins in it. And I went through it, and I said, uh, I wouldn't put that out on the garage sale. And they said, well, I go, how much were you going to put it out for? And they said, about 75 bucks. What do you think? And I said, I was thinking more like 25000 <gasps> And they, of course, you know, were floored, thought I was kidding. And I said, well, I'll give you 25000 and then you'll know I'm not kidding, and then we can all just be done with this. And they said, are you kidding? I said, I'm not kidding. And they ended up getting, I would say, probably about close to 30000 when it was all said and done as we helped them sell it to different people. So how do you think those coins got into that tackle box? I think the grandfather passed away about 20 years earlier. And I think that the grandmother wasn't into the coins, obviously, and was cleaning out the house, and probably it ended up in the tackle box. And then when she passed away, one of the kids probably was cleaning out the house and moved them into the garage. But do you think the grandfather had collected, or this no was question. just changed? There's no question. And I, I've had other stories where I, just by looking at the collection, I can tell if they have more that they haven't found yet, which has happened a number of times, where I'll look at the collection and I'm saying, listen, something's hidden in your house. You need to go back there. And it's happened more than once. You are a very popular friend. <laughs> <laughs> when, you're, when you're just handing out uh, you know, free money and not getting anything in return, of course, they love it. <laughs> Do you make more than your professor salary doing this on the side? I would say if I wanted to retire from teaching, which I enjoy doing and I don't want to do that, I could comfortably live off selling coins if I wanted to. That's so interesting. Well, Mike, if I find a can full of coins, I'll know who to turn to for advice. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. I appreciate it. Thank you. Little old dime, you're my last chance to find her. Michael Musadola is a professor of health and physical education at Longwood University. Let me tell her I'll always This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Just in case things don't work out with someone new.
Welcome back to With Good Reason. We start with a musical mystery and the obsession of a lone British insurance agent and the discovery of missing pages of musical history. Here's former With Good Reason associate producer John Last. Michael Aylward works in insurance. By all rights, he wasn't supposed to be there. Sometimes I wonder myself how I ended up here. I certainly had no intention. (laughs) That's Michael. Recently, he found himself at the end of a decades-long journey, at the threshold of a yet unexplored vault in the basement of London's former gramophone company. He takes a deep breath, and then... All around him are thousands of pristine vinyl records, never before played, long thought lost. It's just a knee-jerk, sharp intake of breath, because you think, we really haven't been touched for over a hundred years, this thing. There were the clarinets of Rasputin St. Petersburg, the missing music of post-war France, odes to Polish rabbis long since passed. As though, you know, you have a, a lost child who had suddenly kind of returned home, safe and sound. What Michael had found was the missing link of a musical tradition as old as the idea of Europe, the lost recordings of klezmer music. This is a modern recording of klezmer music played by one of the greatest living klezmer musicians, Joel Rupin. Joel is also an ethnomusicologist at the University of Virginia. When he heard what Michael had discovered, he realized right away that these vinyl discs from 1908 held the key to understanding just what klezmer music had sounded like during this lost part of European Jewish history. Joel, you were involved in the release of a collection of lost klezmer music. These were pieces recorded in the Russian Empire before World War I and rediscovered a hundred years later. That must have been something for you because you've been deeply interested in klezmer music for decades. It was huge for me. I've been researching this music and performing it for over 35 years, and the missing link were these old recordings from Eastern Europe because we had so few of them up until that point. Why is that important? Didn't we have others who were recorded in other parts of Europe or in America at that time? Well, not in Europe. That's the thing. We had just a handful. Maybe maybe we had 20 or 30 recordings up until that point in all. The rest were made in the United States, and while it's clearly um, closely related, it's not the same. I heard the discovery of this collection of klezmer pieces from pre-World War I had a lot to do with sleuthing on the part of one guy who'd been at it for 40 years. It did. My friend Mike Aylward is a sort of a gentleman scholar. He just got fascinated with this music. He's not Jewish. And over the course of this research, he documented somewhere upwards of 15,000 recordings of Jewish music had been made in Europe during the 78 RPM era. Play one of these pieces for me and maybe explain why this matters so much to people that really know klezmer music. Okay, sure. Well, why don't we start with Pedutzer's Nigen? Now, the reason why this is so interesting is that Pedutzer, we know, was the most 
important klezmer composer and probably klezmer performer. He was a violinist in Berdichev, Ukraine, of the 19th century. We don't have any recordings of him. He died around 1902. Obviously, it's not a violin. This is a clarinetist. And what happened as a part of the research that Mike Elward did was he discovered the existence of this clarinetist named Titun Schneider, which literally means tobacco cutter, about whom we know nothing. We don't even know his first name. We don't know where he came from. And he represents sort of the missing link. It's really an archaic style of clarinet playing that sort of predates the recordings that we knew, for example, from the United States. It's a very vibrant sound with a lot of vibrato, but it's not even or smooth the way we're used to hearing clarinets nowadays. And there's all kinds of little chirps and note bends and swoops and things like that and little variations that that we don't hear in later uh, klezmer recordings. You know, we can hear it and we say, oh, yeah, that's klezmer music. We recognize it as being in the same ballpark. It's a much freer approach to the melody, I think, as part of it, and especially this recording. Let's play another one from there and what it suggested to you. Sure. Uh, well, let's listen to a tune called the Talner Rebbe. I guess for me, as a, as a sort of a music historian and ethnomusicologist, I'm interested in going back to the earliest sources. And a lot of the tunes that we know originated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But these are ev- these two tunes actually are evidence of earlier traditions. So the Talner Rebbe was actually a known Hasidic leader in the Ukraine of the early 19th century. So this is something that goes back probably to the maybe 1830s or something like that. And it's also identifying a melody as having been within the sphere of this one particular religious leader, which which is quite interesting. piece like this have been performed? Originally, klezmer music was predominantly wedding music, but by the time these recordings were made, it could have just as easily have been played in a wine cellar, even maybe in a brothel. I mean, this was music, this was basically functional entertainment music that could have been played almost anywhere where Jews congregated. I read that one of the songs celebrated the arrival of the first effective treatment for syphilis. It did. (laughs) That's right. It's called the 606 dance, and that was an alternative name for this particular medicine, which was developed by Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who was a famous German-Jewish uh, scientist and, and doctor who had actually won the Nobel Prize for medicine at, at one point. It was a thing. There were all these songs, not just in Yiddish. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. It was just a thing, people celebrating the invention of this medicine, which was because uh, syphilis was very widespread, and this was the first effective treatment. All these recordings were made prior to World War I. What became of all these klezmer 
groups during and after World War I? That's an extremely good question. And also what happened to the recording industry. Basically, the disruption of World War I and then the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War, so that's a, that spanned from 1914 to 1921, totally um, changed sort of traditional Jewish life in that part of the world forever. You had geographic upheavals, you had people dying, you had people emigrating. Within the early Soviet Union, there was so much pressure put on religious groups, not just on Jews, to not practice their religion. Klezmer essentially went underground, and a lot of these musicians either went back to their earlier professions, they went back to being cobblers and tailors and so forth. A lot of them went into classical music. Even into the 1960s, I think something like 60% of the string sections of the Soviet orchestras were made up of Jewish musicians, many of whom had come out of these families. So let's fast forward about 100 years and talk about the album. This is where you play the clarinet, along with a group called Varetsky Pass. This is from the album of yours and theirs, Poilin? Mm-hmm. Poilin a Gilgul, it's called. Poilin is the Yiddish word for Poland, and a Gilgul means a metamorphosis. I'd love for you to introduce a piece from that for us that we could hear. Sure. Well, let's listen to the Dino Vernigan, a Hasidic melody from Galicia, which is sort of in the southeast of what, well, now it's in the Ukraine, but at that time it was Poland. part is so human voice-like. Yeah, well, it's really vocal music, so you have to play it that way on the instrument. That's what all those little inflections are. Play another selection also from Poilin. Okay, let's listen to Reb Chaimel's Freilachs. Yeah, so the music that we took and put together into this suite, really, called Poilin, it's sort of the confluence of two different things. First of all, um, Cookie Siegelstein, who's the violinist and the leader of Varetsky Pass, is a daughter of Holocaust survivors, and uh, they came from a little neck of the woods called Varetsky. She grew up with Yiddish music to some extent, but also with a great sort of sensibility for Ukrainian and Polish music. And she loves Polish village fiddling. And I think she was looking for a way to sort of unify that with her interest in in klezmer music. Typical to, to the way they work and also the way I work, we take little bits from all over. So there was, uh, for example, a number of Polish sources that we got, and we picked the ones that either sort of sounded Jewish or had a title that had some indication that it might have some Jewish connection. It's kind of an imaginary landscape 
of what all this music might sound like sort of filtered through a klezmer sensibility? I think during the earlier period of your life when you were playing for 10 to 14 years Mm -hmm. in Europe, this klezmer music, eventually you became a little tired of sort of being on show to be the object of admiration by a culture that really didn't know that much about it otherwise? I think it has changed. I think there are just parallel layers going on. So when I first went to Germany, 1987 was a watershed year, Uh, 1987, 1988, 88 in particular, which was the 50th anniversary of Kristallnacht, of the so-called Pogrom Night, which was the sort of the beginning of the Holocaust, as it were. And it was really the beginning of Germany's sort of public reevaluation of its uh, relationship to the past. And what was really central at that point was what people often call philosemitism, which is sort of the love of all things Jewish. It's sort of the opposite side of anti-Semitism, and it was very prevalent. So people would you know, you would say to somebody, I play klezmer music, and their reaction would be, oh, I love klezmer music. I love Israel. I love Jews. I love this and that and the other thing. Um, there was a lot of that in the air, and it wasn't a healthy relationship, I don't think. It sounds good. It sounds good on the surface, but it's very superficial, I think. And I think the relationship has has become less, on the one hand, less friendly there's been a lot of resentment, I think, especially after 1995, which was the 50th anniversary of the end of the war and the end of the Holocaust. And there were a lot of people who were saying, well, it's enough already. We, we don't want to hear about this Holocaust business anymore. You know, can't you Jews just leave us alone and so forth? And so there was that on the one hand, but I think it's also led to a healthier relationship on the other hand, and you get a lot of younger people especially. So a lot of the people who come to these workshops, we have teenagers. I've had students in my classes at these workshops who were 15 years old. They have a completely different relationship to this whole thing. They don't have parents or even grandparents who were involved in this. They have a much more sort of tangential relationship to the to the Holocaust, and so I think their motivations for wanting to play this music are much more varied than they were, whereas I think you know, the first generation of musicians in Germany who got interested in, in playing this music were really doing it. You know, obviously they loved the music. Nobody goes to learn a kind of music that they don't love. A lot of it was also feeling some kind of historical obligation or, or you know, what what they call Wiedergutmachung, trying to make things better again, or, um, you know, guilt or whatever. And while that's probably still there to some extent uh, in among the older people who are involved in this. I think the younger people feel that much less. I mean, I was born in 1955. That, that was 10 years after the end of the war. That's very different than, say, somebody who was born in 2000 or something like that. Joel Rubin, this has been wonderful. Thank you for sharing your music with me. Let's go out on another piece, maybe one you particularly love from Boylan. Oh, sure. Well, since we've been playing mostly the Jewish side of the Poland Project, I thought it would be apt to go out with something really Polish-sounding. So let's listen to this one. It's called the Hutzelkin. Joel Rubin is a celebrated clarinetist and an assistant professor of music at the University of Virginia. Working-class Americans used to love opera. Verdi, Gounod, and Donizetti, the great composers of opera, 
Opera was once one of America's favorite art forms, and it was affordable. So what happened? Catherine Preston is the person to answer that. She's a professor of music at the College of William and Mary and the chronicler of America's long-forgotten love affair with opera. Catherine, you write that Americans once attended opera performances the way we go to the movies now. Can that be? That's, that is absolutely right. It was like spectacle. It was entertainment. It was, it was music, and it was, it was costumes and scenery and the whole nine yards in a way that we think of like Spielberg today, um, but with music, and they loved it. Was it not expensive then? It wasn't, especially if you're thinking about uh, operettas, Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, if you look at theaters in the South in the antebellum period, there was the gallery, and that's where slaves, African-American slaves and working-class people would go to the theater. And then the middle class would be in the different part of the theater, what we think of as the orchestra section today, or there would be boxes for the upper class. So, so the theaters themselves were stratified in terms of audience, but there were always different economic, socioeconomic groups patronizing these companies. But they would see opera. What kind of operas? Well, they would see English translations of the Continental Fair, so meaning um, Bellini's La Sonnambula, the, sleep, the Sleepwalker. This was one of the most popular operas in America in the, in the antebellum period. Verdi's Traviata. Donizetti's La Fille de Regiment, so the daughter of the regiment. People danced to this music. They played it on their pianos. They played it on their guitars. They heard it in parades. It was everywhere. And so when they go to the opera, they would hear tunes that they knew. And furthermore, a lot of times they were stories that they knew. I mean, a lot of operas of this period were based on novels. Um, same way people today write musicals based on popular place. How long did this American love affair with foreign language operas last? That's a great question, and it is a question that I asked myself for about five or six years. I wondered how we got from what I was finding, this place of opera in American culture that was just ubiquitous. How did we get from there to where we are today? And I finally discovered that it happened in 1873 with the crash the Panic of 1873, which was the worst economic crisis in American history up to that point. When the crash happened and people found themselves out of work, they didn't abandon entertainment because people want to be distracted in times of economic crisis. What they started to move away from was expensive entertainment. The prima donnas for these companies were among the best prima donnas of Europe, and they were expensive. In fact, Christina Nielsen, for example, is a name who's still known today, was being paid a thousand dollars a night in gold to perform. People just went, 
oh my gosh, these, these greedy canaries, how dare they? Um, and and, and at, that was the point at which the American love affair with foreign language opera just disappeared and never came back. Huh. And what took its place in opera? Well, in opera, what took its place was English language translations of the same repertory that uh, the Italian companies were doing. The other thing I have to mention about this is that the wealthy people in America had been trying to make opera into an exclusive and aristocratic and expensive style of entertainment for decades, but they had never been able to do this because there weren't enough of them. If you look at the 1870s, this is post-Civil War. A lot of people got very rich in the Civil War. The munitions factories, people building railroads, they made lots of money. And by the 1870s, they were big enough as a, as a demographic group, at least in New York, to support an opera house on their own. And so they didn't care that the, the middle class was no longer supporting opera. They, they said, oh, fine, this is great. We can make it into our own kind of ostentatious display of wealth. What finally killed off popular American affection for opera? Well, over the course of the 1880s and 1890s, Emma Abbott, this is Emma Abbott's time. She died in 91. She was basically the premier English language Italian opera person. At the same time, there, was, there were increasing numbers of comic opera companies in the 1880s. And when Emma Abbott died very suddenly in 1891, she was on the road, she died of pneumonia in Salt Lake City, there was nobody who could really step in and take her place, who had the kind of charisma that she had and the marketing genius. And that kind of opened the door to this incredible bifurcation of culture, pop culture, which is operettas, some English language operas, and popular theater, basically. And then on the other end were the, the foreign language opera, which was now considered either edifying by some people or expensive, exclusive cosmopolitan entertainment by the, by the wealthy. And it's, ne- it's never really changed since that time. This happened in the, the 90s and then became solidified by the turn of the century. Well, Catherine Preston, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you. I enjoyed having this conversation. Catherine Preston is the David N. and Margaret C. Bottoms Professor of Music at the College of William and Mary. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Let's <laughs> go. <laughs>
Et c'est en vous seul que 